Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Determined Truth Podcast. We have a, uh, another special set of classes, actually, that you get to listen to. So it deviates a little bit from our normal podcast uh, format. But Rob, explain what we have uh, going on for the next few weeks. We're talking about what is the kingdom of God? Perhaps no more significant question than maybe secondary to what is the gospel, that Jesus is Lord. But if he's Lord, it means he's the king. And what's he the king of? And I think if we understand what the kingdom of God is, it'll really help us in so many different aspects of the Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, as well as answering all kinds of different issues. And so we're really going to begin to explore those questions. Cool. Well, hey, I hope everyone enjoys this. We'll, you'll be getting these uh, shows along with our regular podcasts uh, for the next few weeks. So I hope you can glean from this and uh, continue to like and subscribe so you can always be updated on uh, what we're releasing. So enjoy this class on the kingdom of God. Uh, we want to welcome everyone back to our third week in our study of the kingdom of God. Tonight, we're going to look at Luke 6, verses 20 through 45, and really, really challenge ourselves with the teaching of Jesus. If you're not, not familiar with this text, it's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which in itself is in so many ways kind of the gospel encapsulated in, in this New Testament context. I wouldn't say the New Testament gospel, I'd say it's the gospel looked through the eyes of Jesus and the lens of Jesus as the, in the fulfillment context of Jesus. But we're going to begin just by reading the text. And so if you're listening online or listening in your car, wherever you might be, just kind of listen. Always a good spiritual act to kind of hear the word of God. So if any of you be willing to read, somebody can start us with Luke 6, verses 20 through 26. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets but woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other as well. And from the person who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you, and do not ask for your possessions back from the person who takes them away. Treat others in the same way that you would want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if uh, you lend to those from whom you expect repayment what credit is that to you even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full but love your enemies do good to them 
and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. He is be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So as we look at this text, the question at hand is, and just and maybe this is better a question for you to just think about on your own instead of you know, bringing up in a group. What is it that causes me to not carry this out? And I guess one of the things that, one of the ways I'd point this out would be that in Luke's gospel, Luke's kind of throwing this out and our context is going to really help us understand the, the gravity of what he's saying. By the time Luke gets to chapter 17 of his gospel, and, telling, and Luke's telling the story, the disciples are beginning to figure it out. Like, oh, okay, I think I now understand what you mean. Obviously, without the Holy Spirit coming in, Luke, in Acts 2, they still don't completely get it, but they're getting it. And the disciples respond in Luke 17 and say, oh, Lord, increase our faith. Uh, we can't do this on our own as it is now, Lord, increase our faith. And I think that's one of the things that we would say, okay, yeah, faith, lack of faith, lack of trust. But it could also be anger, injustice, uh, abuse. Maybe we just haven't been taught well in the church. We kind of thought, oh, just get yourself saved. And that's all there is, you know, a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's just let that question resonate with us. And what I would encourage you to do is just kind of go back and just read this text, Luke 6, 20, through verse 45, maybe once a day for the next six, seven days till we meet again. And just let it sink in. You know, the best thing that you can do with scripture is just to meditate on it. We get so in such a habit of reading the Bible every day, and we just go chapter one, two, three, four, four, that we don't resonate with one passage. And I encourage you, as Psalm 1 says, blesses the man who, who meditates on the word of God day and night. And that meditating means reading it over and over again. The more you read it, the, the better we're going to get it. So let's do this now. Let's look at, and what I wanted, without looking at your notes, and I know some of you might've looked at the notes already, kind of studied, and that's great if you're if able to do that. 
What are some things that stand out to you about the text itself? As you look at this passage, Luke 6, 20 through verse 45, and if you're listening to this online or on a podcast, just stop and just kind of go back over the text and look at the text and say, okay, what are some things that kind of stand out? Because remember, it's, it, this was meant to be heard. And when it's heard, there, there's going to be these rhetorical features that the hearers are going to recognize. So what are some things that, like that that maybe you recognize or some things that stand out or maybe a verse that's like, okay, hey, this is really powerful or what is this? What jumps out to me is just, you know, Jesus teaching people how to conduct yourselves mm. boy it would be great to have him um, tell this to the world today uh, as he does i wish everyone today would hear these words and the answer to that one is that's what we're supposed to be doing yes. right? uh, through our lives as well as through our words right we, right. we kind of know where this study is going to lead that's us that's what i struggle with as yeah well. that's right I, that's right i don't know that's if right. i mentioned it last week or if it was in one of my other bibles uh, my small group i think but uh you know this is what god has uh, jesus has asked us to do and mm. you know i struggle today with mm. with uh with friends with enemies with yeah. whatever um, uh, particularly just those that disagree that I disagree with politically mm. with all this toxicness yep. in the world and in the news today, I living by these words of loving people. And well, you're not alone. I think everyone in the room is going to yep, yep, yep. Not alone. And church history tells us that we're not alone. So that, that's comforting in a little bit, but obviously it doesn't mean to eliminate the charge, the charge to, Hey, we're supposed to do this. So let's, let's get into that a little bit also. So anybody else, anybody see anything in the text that kind of stands out or? Rob? Yeah. There's a repetition of blessings. Very good. And, and woes. Okay. Very good. That's You're a right. good teacher. Thank you. All right. Very good. So repetition <laughs> of blessings and woes. If you notice, and we'll look at this in, in, in more detail, four blessings and four woes. And then if you compare the blessings and the woes, they actually compare and contrast with one another. Blessed are those who are hungry, woe to those who are well-fed. Oh, the woes and blessings are playing off of each other. I think one of the things that's standing out to me is sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, oh, this is for so-and-so. Oh, yeah. But we forget that it's actually for us because... Yeah. Um, I have a young 21 year old niece who's just in her infancy of knowing God mm, cool. and she's dating a, a boy in a very uh, Christian family. And one of the, one of the um, sisters said something like, well, we don't do that because we're Christian Oh, kind of thing. And mm -hmm. she's like, Oh, excuse me. <laughs> she had a hard time with that, but you know, we talk about loving one another, but I'm literally sitting here listing off people that profess to know God. Yeah, yeah. And then let's just say, if we just take the political stuff, I'm like, you guys cannot talk about loving Jesus in, yeah. in one post and then let's go Brandon in the other post. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. Yep. So that's like the type of stuff. And I'm like, so yep. I'm reading this and I'm like, hi, are we digesting this for us before yep. we worry about it being for somebody else? That's right. That's right. And I really believe that the church has to go back to the beginning, which is here and kind of reshape ourselves and start all over again. And that's kind of the conversation we've had a couple of times. So, all right. Anybody else? Let me mention a couple of things then. 
by way of introduction and kind of get ourselves started. And if you have the notes, I'm actually going to read a portion of the notes tonight, uh, the, the beginning script that I, that I give. And if you don't have them, it's okay, but I'm going to, I'm going to read them. And again, if you're listening online, I'll try to cut and paste the notes into the podcast show notes so that you actually can have them up. But let me review a few things. Number one, the kingdom of God is the reign of God. It's, uh, the kingdom of God is where God is the king. He currently, we might say, reigns from heaven, but he reigns from heaven through the people of God. And of course, remember that heaven, as we discussed before we started the recording, heaven is not some spiritual place distant out there as opposed to the physical world around us. Heaven is where God reigns. And heaven is essentially all around us because as the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. God's everywhere and he's present everywhere. And that means heaven's all around us. But in the sense then heaven has yet to invade the world as we know it. And we discussed kind of the differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world last time. Secondly, then the kingdom of God is where Christ is that king. You have to read the gospels in light of the fact that it's a story about Christ becoming the king. So much, and I'll just mention this very briefly, we have read the gospels of, oh, it's about Jesus coming to save us from our sins. And, and that's why we skip straight to the end of the, uh, end of the gospels. And we go, okay, he was born, he was baptized. Okay, great. Let's go to this, immediately to the cross. And we skip out everything else. And that's where the book referenced to you earlier, how God became king by N.T. Wright is phenomenal. It really, really touched on, hey, listen, if that's all the story is about, him being our savior, then why is there so much of what he calls the middle? You have a couple chapters about his birth, and then you have a couple chapters about his death, and the Gospel of Matthew have 23 chapters in the middle. And N.T. Wright's answer is, the middle stuff is his living out, teaching, and explaining, and showing you what the kingdom is all about. It's, it's critical. So the kingdom of God is where Christ is the king. The baptism of Jesus was when he was anointed as the king. That was his anointing. And remember, only kings and priests are anointed. So when the Spirit anoints him, that is his anointing to be the king. Now, we happen to know he's anointed to be the priest also. Next, as we discussed last time, the kingdom of God is already present, but yet it's not yet fully consummated. It began with the baptism of Jesus. And, the, and you could argue that the kingdom began at the cross. You can argue it began at the resurrection. You can argue it began at the ascension, or you can argue it began at the baptism. You know, it came in phases, whatever you want. I don't care, but it's already here. But at the same time, it's not yet here. And we'll discuss that more as we proceed. But the already part of it is, well, we have the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is the essence of the kingdom and the spirit dwells in our hearts. Therefore, it's already here. But yet it's not yet fully here because, well, we still sin and there's still death and there's still pain. There's, so it's not yet fully here. Last time we also mentioned that the next point is that the kingdom of God differs from and stands opposed to the kingdoms of the world. And that's what we want to kind of get into a little bit tonight, flushing out what that means. We mentioned last time the kingdom of God's eternal. The kingdoms of the world don't last forever. They're, they're going to come under judgment and they will end. We mentioned the kingdom of God is ruled by Christ, but the, kingdom of the uh, kingdoms of the world are ruled by the devil. And that's so significant for our modern day discussions of how we look at the world. And if you've been listening to the podcast that we've been doing on nationalism, I think it's it's crucial because no nation is actually exempt. We might have good nations and better ones than others, and some that are just like full-on evil, but ultimately Satan is the king of and the ruler of them all. And to whatever extent he's allowed to reign in, in those kingdoms, they are not necessarily inherently all good. And I think we kind of lose sight of that at times. And I'm not saying that anyone's evil or satanic either. I'm not saying that any bit whatsoever. 
the, there's a battle between the kingdoms and that we, we talked about that week one and we mentioned it again week two. And the battle between the kingdoms actually goes back to the garden that the serpent and the woman, the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And we see this cosmic battle between the devil and the kingdom of God throughout the entirety of scripture. Pharaoh is portrayed as a serpent because obviously Pharaoh is the embodiment of the serpent because he's opposing the Israelites. And the Israelites are being described in Exodus 1 as fulfilling the, the biblical mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth. And then Pharaoh's like, oh, that's a problem for me. In Goliath and David, a battle between Christ and Satan, it's this constant imagery throughout the Bible of the devil waging war against the people of God and the people of God through Christ waging war in response. And then the next point, of course, will become that the way in which Christ wages war is through love. And that's what we want to flush out tonight. The way these two kingdoms operate are fundamentally opposed to one another. So let me read a little bit of the script for us. So instead of me just kind of digesting it, it might be easier that I put out there. And then if you have questions, feel free to interject and interrupt at any time. Fundamental difference between the nature of the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God is that the aim of one is self and the aim of the other is self-denying. In other words, and this is crucial, the kingdoms of the world are marked by self, whereas the kingdom of God is marked by self-denying love. Now, let me interject this now. And that is the cross is always vital to the kingdom of God. The center of God's kingdom was always pointing us to the cross because that is the embodiment of what the kingdom of God looks like. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me if you want to be my disciple. Continuing on. The nature of the kingdoms, and kingdoms I mean plural, the kingdoms of the world then, is that if you want to eat, drink, and be merry now, then play by the rules of this age. But if you want to eat, drink, and be merry for eternity, deny, deny yourself and follow Christ. Now, let me elaborate on this a little bit further. Let's put it, so what we have to do to understand this text is to kind of bring the Roman context of so the, the biblical world in, in the mind here. So the next point is this. The Roman economy was based on debt and obligation. This is every aspect of Roman life operate on this basis. And in that system, you would do something for somebody else in order to gain something for yourself in the present or to place that person in your debt. For example, a person would be invited to dinner uh, or, or to give so that that person would then have a, a gift, give them a gift in response. The person who received the invite or the gift would then owe the other and would then be obligated to invite them back or to give them a gift in return. Now, until the other person paid them back or returned the favor, they would remain in that person's debt. And one of the problems that this creates in society is that the poor are by nature excluded. After all, they could never afford to pay you back. Consequently, you would never invite them to dinner or you would never give them anything because they can't pay you back. It does you no good. You don't gain anything by giving to them. And this whole system was the way the world worked of debt and obligation. The purpose of giving was to get something in return. It's against this backdrop that we understand Jesus' ethic in Luke 6. The next thing to bear in mind is actually, if you are a Jewish reader of the first century, we would have said, if I asked the question, okay, so what do you notice in this text? And Cindy pointed out, well, you know, the blessed, 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 you know, four blessings and four, four, whoa, 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 whoa. And then if we examine the four blessings and the four woes, we oh, wow, they kind of totally, well, blessed are you who are hungry, but woe to you who are well-fed and blessed are you who are persecuted, but woe to you who are uh, doing well now. Clearly contrasting, and each of the four actually lines up one after the other. 
But if we were good Jewish readers, we would have thought, oh, this is clearly Deuteronomy. Because the book of Deuteronomy is what? It's God's covenant to the people of Israel. And if you do it, you're blessed. And if you don't do it, you're cursed. So the blessings and the woes are God, are Jesus is saying, this is my new covenant. And, and now remember, the new covenant doesn't replace the old one. Re, the word replace is actually a naughty word in some circles of it fulfills it. And Jesus even says that in Matthew 5. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. But note in Matthew 5, there are actually eight blesseds and there are no woes because the woes in Matthew's gospel are in chapter 23. So Matthew gives you two different speeches of Jesus to contain the blessings and the woes. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's one speech, and that's the blessings. And the woes is the speech of Matthew 23. And you can include 24 and 25 or make that two speeches. So Jesus is, is giving a new covenant. It's the, it's the new, and of course, the new covenant is the new covenant in my blood. It's going to be secured with, the, with communion, right? The Lord's Supper. Is, it's all this covenantal kingdom language. And when we say covenant, a covenant is an agreement between the king and his peoples. And that's the way we, we think of this. So if you'll note then the blessings and the woes, and I- uh, Hey, Rob. So, yes, please. Quick question, because I'm running through my mind, but yeah. aren't the woes in Matthew 23, aren't those specifically for the leadership of the church at the time? I mean, he was addressing the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, wasn't he? Well, the, the woes were specifically addressed in, in Matthew's gospel to the leaders because they are the ones who taught the people and were influential over, over the people. So just like anytime uh, a church goes bad, let's say the, the pastor is going to be held accountable first and the elders because that's their responsibilities of spiritual oversight. Doesn't make everybody else like not responsible, sure. but certainly they're following their shepherds. And that's obviously Ezekiel 34, if you remember that text from before, that woe to you shepherds of Israel, because you, you've led them astray. The whole house of Israel is responsible for this. They're all going to fall into judgment, but the leadership actually is, is where the judgment is pointed towards. That's Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets also. Okay. At the beginning of the outline notes, if you skip down now page, what, page four of the notes, I think it is. It says 6, 17 through 49. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. No big deal. It doesn't matter. People go, oh, well, Matthew says it's on the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke says it's on a plain. And people say, well, we can reconcile this because he was on a flat area on a mountain. And the answer is, folks, Jesus probably said this speech a hundred times. It's a bunch of sayings of Jesus collected by Matthew and a bunch of sayings of Jesus collected by Luke. Maybe not even said on one occasion. You can see the, see the structure, four blessings, four woes. He, he clearly put these together on purpose. And Matthew has eight blessings. So somebody did something somewhere. But the point of that is, is Jesus probably said this all over the place. He didn't go, oh, you know, I can't tell that parable. I used it in, in Capernaum. The key, obviously, is that the end of this is in four, verse 46, which we didn't read. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Ooh, there's your dagger, Right. So here's the 20, 20 through 45 that we read. And now we go to verse 46. How do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And you'll see a version of that in Matthew's gospel also. The thing, next thing to note, we have four blessings and four woes. And what we're looking at then, let's, let's put this in a covenantal context first off. In the covenant, it's if you obey my laws, you are blessed. If you do not obey my laws, you are cursed. And blessings and curses basically came to those who follow the law. And the law, obviously, remember, we've, we've talked about this before. In Jesus's eyes is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's problematic. 
But for Jesus now, he's saying, actually, this is what blessed people look like. He's not saying as much, this is what blessed people do. He's going to get to that below. But he's like, these are the kind of people that are blessed. And these are the kind of people that are cursed. Now, the problem that we have here is that we think of poor and wealth strictly monetarily. It's, it's strictly depending on how much assets you have. And that's not what it's meant back in that day. If we think of what I, the passage I read earlier in the, from the script about debt and obligation, debt and obligation, basically who's in and who's out. And there are strata of who's in, it, kind of think of it as a pyramid. The emperor's at the top of the strata uh, and the senator are up there. And then below there, you, you, know, you have different people and different people. And then you have the you know, 90% of the people are poor. And by poor, we mean that they survive every single day on that day's food. They don't have food for tomorrow yet. That's, that's 90% of the Roman empire. You have 7% of the empire that has enough food for today and will probably be all right for a while. That's 7%. And then you have the 3% that didn't worry about this at all because they just go beat somebody up and take their food. They're the wealthy, the powerful, the elite, and they don't ever work. The 3% don't work. Now, what happens though, is you don't mix strata. If you think of, a, of the caste system in India, you, you don't intermarry from one caste to the other because you're bringing yourself down. You're not bringing them up. That just doesn't work that way. So in this Roman system of debt and obligation, you don't socialize with somebody below. You. I know if I'm up here, I don't invite somebody else from down here to my dinner because whether they can pay me back or not is actually irrelevant because they're coming to my dinner actually brings me down to their, to their level. So poor are those who would never be invited to such a dinner, who would never be welcomed at, at, at a banquet at someone's home. There might be public festivals that they go to because everybody does that. That's just part of the Roman religion. It's just weekly, if not monthly, there's always a Roman ceremony that's happening there. And that's how the, the poor remain in the debt of the wealthy because the wealthy throw the, put those on and, and you get meat, which you never get to have any other time. And you go to this pagan festival and everyone indulges and you party and to the gods, etc. And the wealthy do that. And now you're in their debt because they did that for you. And then you labor for them and then they take your grain. That's how they eat. Uh, and then you live on, on the rest. So the poor then are those who are simply the outsiders, who are simply not in. And it might be because they're um, widowed, because they're financially poor. It might be because they're physically handicapped and can't labor and have to live off of alms and, uh, of charitable giving. It could be because they're maybe not a citizen. Uh, race is not an issue. Race, race is a modern construct. So I don't think of racial terms, but ethnic terms, right? Uh, you see this in the book of Acts, by the way, Acts 6, the Hellenistic Jews uh, and the Hebraic Jews were debating within the church. And one was actually not in the church. They were not getting, their widows weren't getting fed. It's an ethnic divide. One considered themselves better than the other because they spoke certain languages. When you add Judaism to this now, to the, the Jewish context also, you had those who are faithful to the law and those who were not faithful to the law. And so Matthew, as we know him to be a tax collector who works for Rome, he's poor. He, he physically was wealthy, but he's an outsider. Zacchaeus in the gospel of Luke, he's wealthy, but he's an outsider. He would be the poor. So Mark's, Matthew's gospel says the poor in spirit. It's a kind of a combination of both. Those who are financially poor are definitely in the category of the poor. But the category of the poor 
is larger than this. So let's kind of run through the, the unless everyone has a comment, let me just kind of run through the fill in the blanks for your sake. And then we'll continue picking this back up because the first part is the blessings, the blessings and the woes, but we really need to get into the nuggets of, of this text here. And we might not finish it all tonight. I apologize. All right, so here we go. So if the first fill in the blank then is, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the first thing to note is it's present tense. You who are poor, the kingdom is yours now, not will be someday. The second one is, is blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. That's future tense in the Greek. So notice, you might be hungry now. I'm not guaranteeing you that you're going to actually get fed, but you will be satisfied in the future. Woe to you who weep now, third one, for you shall laugh. And note, weeping is a sign of suffering and justice. Again, we think of weeping as, oh, you know, something bad happened at work. Weeping in this world is, is inju some injustice happened to you and you have nothing to do but weep. And it's, it's closely associated with poverty and maybe ill fortune. Maybe there was a famine and you have no food now and you had to sell whatever you, the land that you were working on. And now you don't even own the land that you're working on. You pay taxes on that. And now you have even less income next year. Uh, if there is a good harvest, this is weeping. Fourth one is blessed are you when men hate you. For your reward in heaven is great. And remember in heaven doesn't mean some spiritual disembodied state. It means the kingdom of God. So when men hate you and your reward in heaven is great. All right, now notice the end of this, of these four, then includes this little saying, uh, oh, be glad and leap for joy in verse 23. And the reason why is because your reward in heaven is great for that's how they used to treat the prophets. So the four blessings on the poor and the weeping and the, the hungering and are associated with you're blessed just like the prophets were blessed because that's how they used to treat the prophets. Can I ask Before, you Yeah, please go ahead. So does that mean that the prophets were poor? The, in this that sense of being poor, yes. It doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that they were financially poor. But, and again, this is the true prophets, as we're going to see in a moment. Because Isaiah, by the way, worked in the palace. I mean, so Isaiah wasn't necessarily poor, but he was poor in this sense that he was therefore hated by the people because of what he prophesied. He was an, he was an outsider. He was an outsider for, because of what he said. That's he, right. What he said, yeah. That's right. Yeah. In a, in a context, the prophets were listening and actually getting it and trying to convey it to everybody. Yeah. So they're in sync. Everybody else isn't in sync. And that's, yes. that's what he's addressing. Yeah. yeah. And, and that causes you to be uh, persecuted. And uh, Isaiah was son in two is the, the tradition, at least, right? That Isaiah was son in half. Like, yeah, not good. So, okay, very good. The four woes, if you got the new notes, they are, woe to you who are rich. And notice that contrast to the blessing of those who are poor. For you are receiving your comfort in full now. The second one is well to you who are well fed now. And the Greek word, the word now is it's, it's just striking from the text. What do you who are well fed now for you shall be hungry. Yeah, I think we read this as Americans. We're like, okay, this, I mean, clearly we're well fed. What does that mean? It means well fed at the expense of the poor who don't have it. And that's the way the Roman world worked. The, the elite, especially the 3%, and don't limit it to just this, but the 3% at that eliteness, they did not labor. They had no need. They lived off of rent and taxation and burdening on the poor who now 
are trying to live off the land themselves and they have to give some of what they live off the land off to you and they're well fed. And so not only are you leaping off of my labor, but I'm poor as a result of my labor, literally poor. And you're like eating fine meals every day. And remember the parable in, in Luke 16 about the rich man who, who was well fed every day. And Lazarus was, he had a banquet every day, which is like exorbitant. And Lazarus who sat by his gate and the dogs licked his sores. And there's that contrast there. All right, the third one is you who laugh now, for you shall weep and mourn. And the fourth one is when all men speak well of you, for that's how they treated the false prophet. When all men speak well of you, that's how they speak, how they treated the false prophets. So note the contrast between each of the four, comparison contrast between each of the four. And note what finishes each of, each of these things. And that is a comparison between the prophets and the false prophets. The false prophets were well spoken of because, well, there's nothing to hate. They, they're not making wacky predictions. They're saying everything's going to be fine. That's, that's the, a biblical false prophet was, oh, you're not going to be invaded. Oh, God's not going to bring the curses of Deuteronomy on you. That, no, don't listen, don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to Isaiah. Don't listen to Ezekiel. Don't listen to these guys. They're, they're buffoons. And oh, okay, cool. And they were always outnumbering the true prophets. So that they're the ones who are, who are spoken of well. Everybody got that? So now, if we go down to the notes, here, here's what we have. So I'm going to just kind of briefly summarize this, and maybe we'll pick this back up next time and, uh, and kind of go from there, kind of, because I, I think we need to resonate with this text a little bit, and we might not get all the way done. Chapter 6 now, 27 through 38. And kind of watch how it flows. There are going to be four commands. They're going to be A, B, C, D in the notes. And then he's going to have four illustrations. Then he's going to have another command. And then he's going to have three illustrations. And then he's going to have a summary command. So the way Luke has constructed this speech of Jesus, and it may have been something Jesus actually said this way, or perhaps more likely something that Luke actually constructed as he put the speech together. What Luke is doing in the speech is he's saying, okay, let me explain to you what this means now. Otherwise, he's, he's going to, all right, that's all great, blessings and woes, but let me put this in practical terms, what it means. And what it means, obviously, it all funds, falls under the rubric of love. And the love of the believer, the love of the follower of Christ should be this extraordinary love that we've talked about a little bit before, that basically is a, a self-sacrificing love for the sake of the other. It's this cross-bearing love. So the key theme is love. So the four commands, first off, is love your enemies, verse 27. Uh, so here we go. The first fill in the blank is love your enemies. The second fill in the blank is do good to those who hate you. The third fill in the blank is bless those who curse you. And the fourth one is pray for those who mistreat you. So love your enemies. The second fill in the blank is hate you, do good to those who hate you. The third one is bless those who curse you. And the fourth one is pray for those who mistreat you. Now, in this Roman context, these things make no sense. It's like, why would I do that, Jesus? Because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't benefit me. I, I do good to those who do good to me because that's the whole purpose of doing good to them. Why would I do good to those who hate me? Because it, it does me no good. And blessing those who curse me, because if you curse me, you're bringing shame on me. And if you're bringing shame on me, you're bringing me down in the social strata. And the lower I go in the social strata, the less favors I get. In other words, in order to survive beyond 
my daily food is I need to be as favored as possible. I need to be as honored as possible. And so maybe I'm not the best in my tribe, but I need to be as good as I can within my tribe. So that within my tribe, I get some respect. And if people start cursing me and I bless them in response, I'm giving them the okay to curse me. And that just puts me down. So it's this context of saying, hey, this isn't going to work, Jesus. And Jesus' answer is, yeah, actually, it's not going to work, but it will in my kingdom. And it will for this eternal value. So then he goes, he gives four illustrations. If anyone hits you on the right cheek, offer him the other one also. Now, again, this is a social slap in the face. The right cheek means they, they only hit with the right hand. And that means they backhanded you. They, they slapped you in the, and it's an insult. It's meant to insult you. And in the Roman world, if you are insulted, your response is to insult them back. You must defend your honor. Otherwise you've been shamed and brought lower on the social hierarchy. And Jesus' answer is, no, no, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna offer them the other cheek. Meaning, okay, if you wanna actually hit my other cheek now, that's a full on punch. And that's like really violence. Now, there's another thing to be said here, and that is the, the idea of saying, you know, I don't believe in warfare. What's the word I want? I'm a, I'm a pacifist. There you go. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacifist. The problem with that word is that being a pacifist means that you allow things to come on you without doing anything in response. It's passive. You're receiving the action. And that is not a good way to define Jesus. The better way to say is, I believe in nonviolent resistance. Jesus resisted Rome, but he did it in nonviolent ways. And actually offering them the other cheek also is actually a nonviolent way of responding to an insult. Because if they slap you and they've shamed you and you're like, look, it didn't bother me. The whole idea of a shame is it's supposed to bother you. It's supposed to insult you. It's supposed to knock you down. And when you go, it doesn't bother me. And do you want to hit me on my other cheek also? Because I love you so much. I'm willing to go ahead and let you do that to me. You've put the other person in a position of going, oh, I, I can't do that because otherwise I look like the fool in front of everybody. It's an act of aggression, right? And so there's actually this subtle way of saying, I'm resisting this. I'm not allowing you to do what you do without, without resisting, but I'm also not responding in kind. I'm not defending my own honor. I'm not worried about that. That's not what this is about. It's about me loving you so much that I'm not responding to you in kind and putting you down and, and kind of acting the way, the way you act. So there, there is a sense of nonviolent resistance here and not pacificity or passivity or pass, uh, pass. <laughs> sorry, I can't even get the word out right now. You know what I mean? All right, move on. All right, secondly, if anyone wants to take your coat, don't Passive. let them, yeah, yeah, passivism, exactly. Uh, if anyone wants to take your coat, don't withhold your shirt also. Now, what happened is, is in, the, in a legal context, if they take your coat, it's a pledge that, okay, you borrowed something from them and they took your coat. And now the problem is that is they have to give your coat back at the end of the day. That's just the way it works because your coat, actually your outer garment, it's actually your bedding for the night. That's what you sleep with. And so if they take it and say, no, sorry, you didn't pay me back. I'm keeping it. Jesus is like, okay, guess what? Give me your shirt also. Walk around nude. Because if you walk around naked, no one's going like, why are you naked? Because so-and-so took my shirt. You, you're actually, you're actually, see, it's, it's nonviolent resistance. But it's not doing what they're doing. It's not operating the way the world operates. Because the way the world operates is they only do these things for the, for the wealthy and for the, the higher ups, or at least equal in your social strata. And she's like, no, that's not going to work. Because now the poor 
are neglected. And remember, by the way, that in, in the context here, Deuteronomy 15 is, says there shall be no poor among you. People always read Deuteronomy 15 and go, oh, it says the poor you will always have. It's like, well, yeah, that's true. I think it's verse 19. It says the poor you will always have. But verse four says there shall be no poor among you. So when Jesus says the poor you will always have, he's quoting Deuteronomy 15 saying, shame on you. Because there should be no poor among you. That's what the law says. And when you don't offer these things to the poor, to the people lower down, because of the way the culture works, it's not working. So here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to resist this way of living, but in a nonviolent way. The third and fourth ones, and then we'll stop here for the evening. It says, give to everyone who asks of you. And the fourth one is, and whoever takes from you, do not demand it back. Now, the last one is like, wait a minute. The third and fourth one, give to everyone who asks of you is like, but I can't give to them because they won't ever give it back. You see what I'm saying, right? If you give to everyone, that means the poor who can't pay you back. It means the outcast who's, who's going to bring your, your dinner down because they're like, who invited them? I'm not, and I'm, I'm leaving because I can't stay at this dinner. Just like, no, bring them in. You know, go out to the highways and the byways and, and gather them out and gather them in. That's how Jesus does banquets. So that's the first problem is there's no way I'm going to give to everyone who asks of me because these people can't give in return. And so why would I give if I can't get anything back? The whole purpose of giving was to get something back. And then the next one is, and if they, if they do borrow, don't demand it back. It's like, well, that's why I let them borrow it because now they're in my debt until they pay me back. And she's like, no, no, it's not going to work that way. Now, there's, certain, there's a lot more to, say, to be said here, right? Because even just understanding it in that context, Jesus is kind of overthrowing the whole economic system of the Roman world. I mean, this is like blatantly overthrowing the Roman economy. And then we have to go, okay, what does that mean for our modern economy? But also, of course, wrestling with this on, a, on an individual basis, right? On, on an individual basis. By the way, we do this a little bit, you know, if you invite, you know, Anthony, you got your young kids and if, if they invite somebody over for a birthday party, Marla probably makes a list of everybody who came and, and what the gifts were so that, you know, if you go to their party, you know, you kind of, and it's just, it's, that's not wrong. It's just kind of called social ethic. It's just the way we do things. Well, they gave this, so we need to, you know, give something to them. I can't show up without a gift to their house because they came to my house without a gift, you know, the gift. If you're invited for dinner, you, you bring a plant. It's like, I just wanted you to come over for dinner. I didn't want a plant. Thank you. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I, I owe you something because you gave me something. Uh, and we just kind of feel obligated. And that's, that's fine. It's to totally socially acceptable to do that. The problem is, is when the poor go, but I can't do that. And so I'm going to turn down the invitation to go to dinner because I know if I show up and somebody else shows up and they come with a gift, I can't give a gift. And so... I don't want to come to that dinner. And so I don't think we think about that sometimes. I know those of you who know that we used to have dinners in our home back in Bakersfield because we would have church was dinner. And the first thing I said was, I, I don't want anyone to feel obligated to, to bring something for dinner because you're thinking I won't go to church because I can't afford to bring something. And so my wife and I just kind of, we made sure that we had everything covered. You know, and then Gracie was on the call and John and Shirley, they, you know, they would always bring, John and Shirley would always bring fruit Gracie would always bring a salad, right? And that's fine. But we didn't want somebody else coming over thinking they had to bring something because I, I'm not going to go to church because I don't, I don't have anything I, I can afford to bring. 
we have to think about this in our own culture. Go, okay, how does this work in our own society? Because kind of the rules are a little bit the same. Obviously, we're going to wrestle with the, with the rest of this text next time. So good. So maybe it's good that we that your homework assignment this week is to kind of wrestle with this passage, just kind of read through verses 20 through 20 uh, through 45 or even through 49, technically. By the way, I forgot to mention something earlier, and that's this. It's always hard when you take a text out of its immediate context. And so we're looking at this passage you just go as though it's a standalone sermon of Jesus, but it's in the story of Luke's gospel. And its place in Luke's gospel is this. Jesus has just started his ministry. And what happened right before this passage was he calls his disciples. So verses 12 and following, he chooses his 12. So in Luke's gospel, this is Jesus's first teaching to the 12. And now in Matthew's gospel, this is Jesus going up on Mount Sinai and given the new law. In Matthew's gospel, he's just come out of Egypt, basically. He's come out of the wilderness, uh, out of Egypt and out of the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. And then he goes up on a mountain in Matthew's gospel, and he says, here you go. Blessed, 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 blessed. So the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel is the new law for the new people of God. And it's certainly that way for the gospel of Luke also. This is the new law for the new people of God but it's the fulfillment of the old law because love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself obviously come from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Sorry, we didn't get through all of it. There's a lot more to get, to, to get through and that we'll wrestle with a little bit. Any questions or comments or thoughts or snide remark? You talked about, well, I don't, I don't, I don't come to dinner because I don't have anything to give you, but sometimes it's like, we, we need to love them enough and be centered in our relationship with God enough that we don't necessarily expect them, though we would want them to love us back the way mm. we need it. We need to love them enough to be okay with not receiving back what we think we need from them. Yeah. I hope that made sense. Yeah, I think, I I think that so. made sense. But ultimately, when we, when somebody does something to us, what they actually need is for us to do something back to them because then it justifies their behavior to us. If you think about this, if you don't respond in kind, but only respond lovingly, then ultimately, eventually, they're going to look the fool. Now, for a while, just think of this in the schoolyard, the, the sixth grade schoolyard. They put you down. They, they say something to you. They bully you. And then the guy who does the bullying, everyone, oh, they want to be on the bully side, right? Because they don't want to get bullied themselves. So they laugh with the bully and they mock you and they put you down. What the bully ultimately needs you to do, though, is to respond in kind and to not like it and to show that it's working because that makes the bully the bully. And because as soon as as soon as you're like, hey, you know, I'm sorry that you did that, but here's my other cheek. Do you want to? The bully didn't get what he needed. He didn't get the satisfaction out of it. And if you respond in kind, he's like, yep, see, I'm justified. And the way when it happens in family and family dynamics are so hard because this often takes years when years go by and then they finally look back and go, they, they actually have really never done anything like that to me. What you, this is the hard part. And, and I'm not necessarily speaking to Anthony at all on this one. The hard part is they ultimately, they end up forgetting what the harm that they did to you. And they start treating you better because you never did anything back. And there's like reconciliation, but sometimes that reconciliation never comes with the justice that you want. And sometimes 
this is the hardest part about preaching, by the way, because everyone's listening to what I'm saying right now, and you're thinking about a specific context. And, and I'm speaking very generically. Sometimes the answer is you may actually never get that justice. Because if you try to get the justice, you're not going to get the reconciliation. And you have to decide what's more valuable here, the reconciliation of the relationships or the justice. Now, I'm not speaking about abuse. I'm not speaking about injustices and criminal acts. I'm not speaking about that at all, because obviously justice has to be done there for the sake of the person who committed the crime, as well as for the sake of the person who may have, who may be the subject of that, of that person's crime again in the future. But just family dynamics, it's so hard to kind of just let it go and not respond. It, we all know, right? It's really, really hard. But if you do, it may actually facilitate reconciliation then. Now, I know we got like professional counselors who might want to chime in and, and, and cover some things that I, that I didn't quite cover. And you're welcome to do so if you wish. Listening to all this is pretty fascinating. But, you know, I'm not the most astute person in the world, and I'm pretty simple. But I like to read, and I've observed the civil yeah. rights thing. And you look at Dr. King. Yeah. Dr. King called out the South, basically the Baptist. I hope I'm not offending anybody. But to live the higher ideals, yep. to, to truly live is, is in love as God is loving. And you talk about the, the passivity. I mean, that was nonviolent resistance. And in the end, it did have a benefit towards advancing societal norms and values for the dignity of life. But here we are still in the struggle. So to dovetail into what you're saying right now, even though it's, it's supposed to be a family this church family is still massively struggling with yeah. gross injustice, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. You, you think it does, but it's all on the surface. I mean, your articles certainly speak to that every yeah. week. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I totally agree. And, and I'm going to, my next set of blogs that'll be coming up in, in a couple of weeks, if not a couple a month or so, uh, I'm going to write a whole series of articles on the church and the state of the church today. And, the, and who is the church? What is the church? Except, and we have to keep on to keep this in perspective. Let me read you a quote to kind of conclude here from a book called Second Clement. Now, Second Clement, now Clement was the Bishop of Rome, but this may not actually be the same man and we don't know. This writing here is maybe late first century, but probably sometime in the second century. But nonetheless, it's written to the church. And it's written in regards to, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You know, do not even you know, pay into the same. And here's what he says. He says, when they hear from us that God says, quote, it's no credit to you that if you love those who love you, but it is a credit that if you love your enemies and those who hate you, end quote. When they hear this, they wonder at this extraordinary goodness. But when they see that we not only don't love those who hate us, we don't even love those who love us. They laugh at us in scorn and the name is blasphemed. It's the same problem we have today, right? I mean, it's, it's, that's just always been the problem. And so we have to reckon with that. Okay, look, we're all guilty of this. I don't even love the people that love me sometimes, let alone love the people that, that don't love me. And then, of course, we look at the larger church, you know, which I think has become corrupted with whether it's prosperity or we've been corrupted by our comfort. We've been corrupted by our, our power. Our power, of course, by the way, is the big word here. Uh, we've been corrupted by power um, and the dynamics. I don't know how many of you are listening to the, the podcast on Christianity Today, the Mark Driscoll podcast, but they're extremely grieving. And Unfortunately, it's a story that I know all too well from many, many experiences. And what I can't get the larger church to recognize, that, that the larger church that I've been a part of, what I can't get them to recognize is how common these stories are. 
because the younger generations have all been scarred by the acts of what they see as Christendom. And that's why I'm saying we need to get back to this. We got to do this first, at least better. We, we're never going to get this perfect, but we got to do this better. And before we can do this better, we can't do anything else. Paul, don't even try talking politics because we're just not ready to have that conversation yet because nobody respects us. And until they do, why, why speak? So that's kind of my thoughts. So, yep, Helen. I think the thing that comes up for me is hypocrisy mm -hmm. and um, authenticity. So right. I think that there's, you know, struggling with, yeah, you know, I, you know, we, I can act and be kind and give to somebody and, you know, do superficially do the thing that looks like you're being a Christian, but it's, and maybe you were saying this, but I was distracted, but it's mm -hmm. what's in your heart, what's mm -hmm. honestly in your heart, which goes deeper and deeper. And that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's like deep, deep in your heart. And can you look, look into your heart and say, yeah, I can honestly love that person. And I know, and that's, that's where I struggle. Yeah, yeah. I want to, but right. man, I see some stuff and I like, I cannot, I cannot say mm -hmm. yes to that. So then what comes up for me is this whole that your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, if you can't do it, isn't it better to say, I can't, that's, that's too big a step for me and I need help to get there. But yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't say yes, right. I can't say yes when my heart says no, because then that's not being truthful and authentic. Right. And I think yeah. a lot of us are saying yes when we feel no. And we got to work yeah. on the no. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll go into this more next week too. Love here doesn't mean that you feel good about them. And love doesn't mean that you like them. Love means that you're willing to lay down your life for them. So there's, and then the next thing is, yeah, there are levels of abuse that this becomes nay impossible to do. And, and we're not asking that person to do this yet. Uh, we're, that, that's not the context of what we're, of what we're saying right now that's a different cup of tea. And, and I think that's where counseling and, and help come in. So we don't want to make you feel bad. Okay. I can't do this for the, this person. I must not be a good Christian. It's like, no, that's not the point here yet. You, you're suffering. You're suffering. Um, you've been hurt. You've been harmed and you're not well, and you need to get well before we can even think about asking you to go that way for that person there, but loving them, you can still love them in the meantime. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.